Hebrews chapter 8 is all about the greatness of the new covenant that we get to live in. And uh, so I'm excited to tell you a little bit about that. But our, the wonderful thing about this is, is it's the fulfillment of a promise that God has given to us. Right? And our, I want us to just experience and remember for a moment what it looks like when you begin to anticipate something. Right? Remember the last week that we've all been sitting through after we beat Wales in the nail-biter of a semi-final, right? And now we know we're going into the final, and everyone's kind of picturing us as underdogs, but there's this hope that's in your heart for what the Springboks are going to do when they get together on the field, right? And then you're worried because, you know, Jerome Garcia is going to be the ref, and you're like, oh, but he was like, I mean, he was okay against Wales, but he was really rubbish in all our history with him. And, uh, and England have had two weeks to rest, and we've only had a week. And, and then there's this admin that's going on with Ibn Etzebeth in the background, and you're just all really concerned. But at the same time, there's this hope and this expectation in your heart that, man, come Saturday, I believe the boys can do something. There's going to be an upset. They're going to they're throw everyone out there. And there's this hope, this expectation that's building. Right? And then how, how did it feel yesterday? As you watch that game, and you just saw Lukandoam and Mapimpi Makizolo Mapimpi smashing down the sideline and crashing the ball under the poles, and you were just like, unbelievable. Like all of the neighbors in our complex heard us scream. It was just amazing. And then when Cheslin got the ball on the side and just zoops through three oaks to seal the deal, and it was done. And then you see the guy already engraving South Africa's name onto the cup. There's still 10 minutes to play, but no one's going to make there's just this joy in your heart as you see the goodness of a hope that's been fulfilled, hey? You know, we get to look this morning at the promise of God that's been fulfilled that is so much greater than what the Springboks did. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm so excited to be the rugby world champions. But what God has done for us in the new covenant is so much bigger and so much greater, and we get to celebrate that goodness today. We get to celebrate that goodness every day. So that's what we're going we're gonna to look at this morning. That's where the author takes us in his journey and his letter to the Hebrews. And so he starts in Hebrews chapter 1, and he speaks about the supremacy of Jesus, that Jesus is greater than all of the angels. And so when Jesus speaks, the revelation that Jesus gives, we need to be real careful that we don't take that lightly, that we don't neglect that, because then we become in danger of being like the generation, he says, in the wilderness, who had this incredible revelation of God, who saw God work in amazing ways, and yet they hardened their hearts and they failed to enter into the land. Right, then he begins to talk to us about the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And he shows how Jesus' priestly ministry is superior to that of the Levitical priesthood. And then again he warns us and he says if Jesus' priestly ministry is so great, then we need to again be careful that we don't neglect that and reject that. And then he continues and he goes back to Melchizedek and continues to tell us about what Jesus does as our high priest. And he ends with this idea. He says, Jesus Christ himself is able to save us completely, even from the deepest depths of our sin. That's kind of the climax of chapter 7, the greatness of the high priestly ministry of Jesus on our behalf. And that's where we've kind of gone over the last number of weeks and today as we go into Hebrews chapter 8, he's going to introduce to us the new covenants, which just like Jesus is superior to the covenant that it superseded. Just like Jesus is greater than Aaron, so the new covenant is so much greater than the old. 
And I know for many of us, this might feel like quite familiar grounds. If you've been in church for a while, hopefully you know what the new covenant is. If you don't, I'll tell you about it later, right? But, but I want to encourage you this morning, don't let your familiarity with what God has done for you allow you to treat it lightly or with contempt, right? What God has done is incredibly wonderful. And let's just appreciate that and celebrate that and cause that to rise worship in us as we look at what he's done. So we're going to read through Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to pause kind of halfway. I'm going to make some comments and then we're going to take the last bit a little bit slower. All right, so let's jump in together. Hebrews chapter 8, all the way from 1 to 13. Here is the main point, our author says. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. And there he ministers in a heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering as well. If he were Here on earth, he would not even be a priest, since there are already priests who offer gifts required by the law. But they serve in a system of worship that's only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old covenant Then the old covenant as the covenant he mediates is better. I'm going to read that again. I didn't do that very well. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This, is the covenant, this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. For they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. Okay, we're going we're gonna to pause here because this is, this is the build-up, right? This is the, the build-up to the moment. This is like the pre-game talk as you listen to a Nas Buerta and a Nick Mallet telling you about how great the Springboks are going to play, right? And uh, we're going to notice a few things and then we're going we're gonna to carry on. Right, so, so I want to jump to verse 5 for us. I want you to notice in verse 5, the author does something really significant here. He says that these, these priests... Right, the Levitical priests, they served in a system of worship that's only a copy or a shadow of the real one in heaven. And I want to pause here because what the author does is he uses these terms, copy and shadow, and those terms are illustrative of a significant type of relationship that the Old Testament has in general with the New Testament. And I want to pause for a moment here because I need to share with you a little like a pastoral confession, Right? Something you may not know, but one of the things that, that really it hurts my heart when I hear it as a pastor is when I'm discussing the Bible with someone or with a group of people, and I hear this phrase, yeah, but that's Old Testament, right? I don't know if you've heard that phrase or people have said that to you. Maybe you've said it, right? That's okay. We don't think you're a terrible person. But sometimes when people say that phrase, it's as though that phrase in and of itself or the fact that what you're reading is in the Old Testament thereby nullifies the importance of that text for our lives today. And I just think that's really, really unhelpful and, to be honest, incorrect. You might remember 
uh, a few months ago, Andy Stanley kind of infamously said that you should unhitch the Old Testament from your faith. If any of you know who Andy Stanley is or follow him, he's a big pastor in the States. Now, many people took that to mean you need to dump the Old Testament completely. That's not actually what he meant. And uh, he was trying to explain to people, if you've got hang-ups in the Old Testament, like you battle to understand how God could command genocide, just leave that aside and, and focus on Jesus and you can follow Jesus. That's what he was trying to say. It's not what he actually said. And it wasn't particularly helpful. Right? But the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament is a really significant relationship. It's something the author is going to speak a little bit about at the end of the chapter as well. But it's also not a simplistic one. Right? You can't just say, yeah, but that's Old Testament and thereby disqualify a text from having meaning in your life. The connection between the Old and the New Testament is much more significant and much more complex than that. One example, God hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist in the Old Testament. They exist in the New Testament, and they are not different. They didn't have a personality shift in between Malachi and Matthew. Right? God stays the same. God tells us that He stays the same. In my favorite verse, in the Scriptures, I, the Lord, do not change. That is what the Lord says. Malachi 3, verse 6a. Right? <laughs> Therefore you, O Israel, are not consumed. That's B. Right? But the fact that God doesn't change enforces His mercy for us. But God doesn't change. The, the Lord of the Old Testament, the God that you read about, the stuff that He says, the things that He feels... It's the same God that we serve today. It's the same Jesus. He hasn't changed across the Old and the New Testament. But here in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, the author introduces a concept to us in, that explains some of the ways in which the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. And we call this typology. All right? Technical term. I'll explain it now. Right? Typology is the idea that one thing can stand as a representative or a model for another thing. You heard of a prototype? Right? That's where this idea comes from. So through typology, events, people, statements in the Old Testament are seen as types that prefigure events or aspects of Jesus and His revelation in the New. Okay? Let me, let me give you an example so that will sound less fluffy and more concrete. Do you remember when Abraham is told to offer Isaac as a sacrifice in Genesis 22? It's a classic story in the Old Testament, right? Abraham has one and only son that's uh, from his wife, Sarah. It's the promised son that God has said, I'm going to bless all nations through you. This is the, this is the son through whom the promise is coming. Then God says to him, listen, Abraham, bad news. I want you to take Isaac. I want you to take him up to a mountain in the land of Moriah. I want you to sacrifice him. But of course, you remember before he can go through with the sacrifice, the two of them are there together on the mountain. And uh, Isaac's like, Lord, uh, Dad, what are we going to do? Where's the sacrifice? And, Don't worry, Isaac, the Lord will provide. And then they get to the top of the mountain, and there suddenly an angel appears, and there in the bushes is a lamb trapped in a thorn bush. And God provides Right? I want you to connect the dots to the New Testament. In the book of John, Jesus appears, and John sees Jesus, and he looks at him before they've spent time together, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where do you think he got that idea from? It's not, that's not coincidence. It's intentional typology. You may not know this, 
But the mountain where Jesus was crucified is believed to be the same mountain where Abraham and Isaac went and offered the lamb as a sacrifice. Right? And if not exactly the same, it would have been within a couple of hundred yards of the place. See, the lamb in Genesis 22 is a type of Christ. It's a picture of who Jesus was and what he would do. Abraham is a type of the Father. It shows the grace and the love of the Father, the willingness to obey, right? the calling of the Son to go. The lesson of Genesis 22 is not to take your children and sacrifice them because you think God told you to. Right? That's not how we apply Genesis 22 into our lives anymore. Instead, we look at it and we see in Genesis 22, we see a picture, a pointer towards the salvation of God that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. That just like that lamb was given as a sacrifice that redeemed Isaac's life, so Jesus is given as a sacrifice that redeems our lives. Does that make sense? It's what we call typology. It's what the author says here in Hebrews chapter 8. He says the whole system of worship, the Levitical priests, the temple, the sacrifices, all of those things foreshadow their complete counterpart, which is in Jesus. And you'll go on in chapter 9 to talk about the heavenly tabernacle that Jesus ministers in and the perfect sacrifice that Jesus offered. But he's saying all of the stuff that you saw in the Old Testament, it was there to show you some of who God is and tell you that there's going to be a more complete version that's going to come in Christ. So next time you read something in the Old Testament, don't just think to yourself, yeah, but that's Old Testament, that doesn't matter anymore. Right? There might be something more in that. Take a moment to ask yourself, what is this telling me about God? How do I see that reflected in the God I read about in the New Testament? Just, just a little moment. Right? We, need, we need to have that pastor confessions. Okay, I'm done. We're going to move on. All right. Secondly, I want us to just consider for a moment verses 7 and 8, because there are a couple of things that are significant here. There's a couple of things we can notice. All right. Firstly, the author says there is a reason we need a new covenant. And because there is a problem, he says, with the old one. And he says the problem with the old covenant, he explains in verses 8 and 9, is actually a problem with the people. Right? The people, God says it's because there was, if the first covenant had been faultless, we wouldn't have needed a second. But there was a problem with the first covenant. Here's the problem. The problem was the people the covenant was made with. The people were sinful people. Right? Remember the wilderness generation? The generation we looked at in in chapter 3 a couple of weeks back? That even though God led them out by the hands, says in verse 9, that He, with His strong arm, took them out of Egypt, led them through the sea, provided for them in the wilderness, still they didn't remain faithful. This is still a problem we have today. We as people, unfortunately, are still sinful. And so we see there's an issue that the author identifies. He says, this is one of the key problems with the old covenant, is that it was a covenant made with sinful people. And the new covenant, if it's going to be better than the old covenant, needs to overcome the sinfulness of the people that it's made with. Right, so we're going to see how that happens in the new covenant. Secondly, and this is just an FYI, I think it's, really, it's an interesting one though. We're about to read the longest continuous quotation of the Old Testament that exists in the new. All right? 
So no other place in the New Testament quotes a continuous section of the Old Testament like we're about to read here in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. And this quotation comes from Jeremiah 31, from verses 31 to 34. And I think it's fitting that the longest quotation of the Old Testament is the promise of the new covenant that God's going to bring. I think that's a really beautiful thing. Finally, before we move into the covenant itself, I want you to notice the last two lines of the slide here, right? I want you to notice that this covenant, this promise is given to the people of Israel and the people of Judah. This is, this is significant because at the time this covenant was given, Judah was about to be sent into exile and destroyed, which means if you know your Old Testament history, the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes, the nation of Israel, have already been destroyed. The nation of Israel does not exist anymore. Right? All of their cities are gone. They're taken over. Assyria moved in, wiped them out. The ten tribes don't exist. And yet God says, there's a promise that I'm going to make to those people. That there will be a new covenant I will make with them. I want to humbly suggest to you that this is another moment of typology. This is another foreshadowing where God is saying, I'm not just going to keep the original people that I call, but I'm going to be bringing in those who are outside. I'm going to be bringing in the Gentiles who are going to be a part of this new covenant. So let's read the covenant together and, let, and let's see why this covenant is worth celebrating. Okay? Hebrews chapter 8 from verse 10. This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Here's the first promise. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them down on their hearts. That's the first part of the new covenant. And we, and we know this, right? If you've been in church for a while, you'd probably be able to say that from memory. But can we just stop for a moment and, and consider what an incredible shift that is from the Lord? Let's, let's go back. Let's go back to the Israelite nation the first time God makes the covenant with them, the old covenant. Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 and 8. Right, the Lord has given His people a new covenant. And uh, it says, this, Then He, Moses, took the book of the covenant and He read it to the people. And here's how they respond. We will do everything that the Lord has said. We will obey. We're excited. We've just won the World Cup. We can do anything. Right? That's the nation of Israel. God has just taken them through the desert, through the sea, provided in the wilderness. We are trusting God. We can do it. We will do it. We will follow God. Then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. The people, are, they're on a little bit of a high. And when God gives them the covenant, they say, yes, Lord, we are in. We're going to do everything. You remember how that went? Right? Remember what we read in chapter 3? They got from Mount Sinai to the promised land, and God said, all right, team, go. Let's conquer this thing. And they looked, and they were like, hell no. Ain't going no there. It's dangerous over there. And they said, we'd rather die in the wilderness. How long did their faithfulness last? A few weeks? A few months maybe? Right? Do you remember the days before you knew Jesus? How sometimes you'd want to make a change in your life. You want to be better or fitter or a nicer person. Some of you are thinking, Brad, what do you mean like remember? We're still there. Right? 
and you try and you try and you try and you just never seem to create sustainable change. Right? It's because before Jesus, our hearts are not neutral. But they're engraved in sin. They're engraved by sin. Our inclinations are sinful. The natural bend and the natural direction of our hearts and our minds is to go away from God. That's why Paul writes and says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. This is the same for the Israelites. Throughout their history, they never got the redemption of the spirits. The Holy Spirit did not come and renew and regenerate the whole nation of Israel. They never got the new covenant. Right? Their hearts were engraved in sin and their intentions were always sinful. And they had to fight and resist them constantly in order to please God in anything that they did. It was an uphill battle. It was constant disappointment. It was constant frustration. Maybe you know what that's like from your own life as you look back. God declares in this new covenant, He says that He will make that he's going to make with his people, the covenant that we get to live in now. He says, instead of your heart being engraved in sin, they're going to be ingrained with the ways of righteousness. How wonderful is that? That the intentions of your heart are going to begin to change because God is going to take your heart and transform it. Ezekiel says he's going to take your heart of stone and he's going to give you a heart of flesh that's going to be inclined towards God, that's going to want to move towards God. No longer is our every inclination sinful, but in the new covenant, because God is at work in us, because He is molding us and shaping us and making us to be more like Jesus, right? the inclinations of our heart begin to tend towards Him. That's what happens because God has redeemed our hearts. So that as His people, we get to continue to live in His favor, because now we begin to follow Him more and more consistently, Right? And the more time we spend with Him and the more of ourselves we give to Him, the more we come to know Him better and the more He shapes us and molds us to be more and more like Him. And hopefully, ultimately, unlike the wilderness generation, we get to follow God. We get to do that faithfully. That's the first promise of the new covenant, that God is going to take His laws and He's going to put them into our minds and He's going to write them onto our hearts. And we're going to begin to angle us toward Him in our internal being. That's a beautiful thing. Here's the second promise. God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. In the new covenant, we get to be God's people and He is our God. Now this is an amazing promise, but some of you are sitting here and you're like, Brad, I, I, I know this in the, in the Scriptures. God already said this of His people in the Old Testament. This isn't, a, this isn't a new promise that we get in the New Covenant, and you're quite correct. It does exist under the Old Covenant, but the meaning gets so much deeper and more significant as you come into the New Covenant. It goes from being a corporate statement about a group of people that have a corporate identity to being intimate and personal. Under the Old Covenant, when God said this to His people, it created a national identity. It set them apart from the rest of the people of the world because they had access to the one true God in heaven. But in many ways, God remained separate from them. He dwelt in the most holy place. 
And the, only the high priest was able to go into the most holy place. And he only got to do that once a year. And they tied bells and ropes around him in case he died because he was sinful when he went in there. Because God would strike him down if there was sin on him. And then they had to pull him out by the rope on his ankle. There were times when because of the people's rebellion, God turned his back on the people. Remember what we read in chapter 3. And there were, there were still, he was still their God, and they were still his people, but there was a, a transcendence in the relationship. There wasn't an imminence. God wasn't right there with them. But he was a God that they had to, had to pray up to heaven and, and hope that God would listen to them. He was above them and beyond them, and on a personal level, he was largely inaccessible to them. Most of your average Israelites didn't have a personal and intimate relationship with God. The new covenant, this promise morphs and takes on a much more personal and intimate component. I want to read for you God's promise of Revelation 21. This is ultimately where the new covenant culminates. This is the full expression of the new covenant. All right? John writes this and he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there wasn't any sea anymore. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And catch this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Remember in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve walked in the garden and God walked with them. There was an intimacy in their relationship that got lost because of sin. In the new covenant, in its full culmination, in the new heaven and the new earth, we get to be with God. And He Himself is amongst us in our midst. That's the promise. That's, that's the future. Right? But it's not just a future promise. There are many places in the New Testament that show us that we begin to be able to enjoy those benefits even right now. Jesus prays for his disciples in John chapter 17. In verses 20 and 21, he says, My prayer is not just for the twelve, right? but I pray also for those who would believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. May they be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That we would be united and joined to the Godhead. Matthew 28, right? The Great Commission. Remember the Great Commission? It ends with this promise. Surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. I am with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And he says, guys, you need to know that whoever is united with the Lord has become one in spirit with Him. That God's spirit, the word is literally to be welded or to be fused. The spirit of God becomes fused to our spirit. It becomes intermingled and the two join one another. Those are just a few examples. I could share many more. Right? But in the new covenant, where God says, I will be their God, they will be my people, there is an intimacy, there's a personal that relationship that he begins to develop, a closeness that we're able to have with God that no one was ever able to have under the old covenants. What a blessing. What a blessing.
he continues. Here's the third promise. Right? They will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. We all get to know God. Let's take a moment and, and bring this into perspective for us. Right? In the old covenant, the priests and the scribes taught you the law. You went to the temple and they read from the law, a little bit like we're doing now, right? And the prophets came and they called the nation to repent. And they told the nation, if you repent, these are the promises that God has for you. And then you would go, as in your personal capacity, you would go up to the temple and you would offer sacrifices to atone for your sin and to say thank you to God for what He was doing in your life. But you would give the animals to the priest and the priest would take the animals and go do the thing on the altar and you'd come back and say, okay, you bless my son. That was your relationship with God. The new covenant is, again, so much more intimate and personal. We don't just get to know about God anymore because someone read from a book to us. But we get to know Him through personal experience. You get to experience the living God. He is with you and speaks to you and leads you. Jesus tells us that the sheep of God know His voice. Right? They know His voice because He speaks to them. He says in John 14, 26, When I go, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things. And remind you of all that I've taught you. The Holy Spirit Himself will speak to you and teach you and show you who the Father is. Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians, and he, and he uh, cites this from the Old Testament. He says, remember, it's written, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed those things to us by the Spirit. The Spirit of God, the person of God Himself, comes to you and begins to show you who God is and reveals the Father to you and shows you His fullness and His goodness and His glory. In the new covenant, we will know God because God will be known to us, because we will have experienced Him, because we will know Him personally. We will be able to speak to Him and hear from Him. He Himself will lead us into righteousness and into truth. God makes His relationship with us really personal. You don't need to be a priest or a prophet or a king or even a pastor to hear from the Lord now. You get to do that because you're a son or a daughter of the Most High King and He's joined His Spirit to you. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? And so here comes the final and, and climax of the new covenant, the final promise. Right? For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. I want you to notice the first little word there, right? For. This last promise is the reason that enables all of the other three. The whole new covenant that we get to enjoy, all of what God is doing with us and in us, is because of this final promise. Right? Because He has forgiven our wickedness and our sins. Remember the author said in verse 7 that God had a problem with the first covenant, and the problem was the sinfulness of the people. Right? It was their sinfulness that caused them to renege on the covenant that God made for them. It was their sinfulness that caused them to rebel and to step away and to not do that which God had called them to. And whilst they were 
still sinful, God couldn't give His people any of the blessings of this new covenant because He couldn't be in the presence of that sin. God can't join Himself to a sinful spirit. Can't be done. In Him there is no darkness at all. Sin is the divide that it will eternally separate man from God. And it's only in the work of Jesus in the new covenant that God could restore that fellowship and that intimacy that He desires to have with His creation. See, the Old Testament did some of this, but it never fully dealt with sin. It, in fact, it would actually call sin to remembrance. So on the Day of Atonement, the whole nation would gather together, and they would get a lamb and a goat, and they'd gather them together, and the sins of the people would be spoken over the goats, and it would be sent out into the wilderness. Right? And we'd all watch as our sin went into the wilderness. Year after year after year, we'd be reminded of our sin and watch it go away. The Old Covenant could also not deal with the heart because the heart was not yet regenerated by the Spirit. It wasn't yet a heart of flesh. It was still a heart of stone. So even though you got your sins forgiven on the Day of Atonement, right, the next day you'd go home and argue with your wife and shout at her and suddenly you need more forgiveness because you've sinned again. But in the New Covenant, Jesus works in our hearts and shapes our hearts so that you stop sinning as much as you used to sin. So that you start living more and more and more in righteousness as you become more and more like Him. Finally, and I wonder if you know this, in the Old Covenant there was no forgiveness for serious sin. There was a point of no return. If you murdered someone, you would be stoned. If you raped someone, you would be stoned. If you committed adultery, you would be stoned. There was no, like, oh, I'm really sorry. If you accidentally killed someone, you could try and run to a city of refuge. And if you got to the city in time, then they couldn't kill you, right? But that was for an accident. And if they got you before that, well, sorry, you killed someone, so your life is forfeit. Right? You weren't allowed to leave that city until the next year of Jubilee, which happened every 50 years. You remember when David sinned with Bathsheba? and then murdered her husband Uriah, right? There is no provision for David to receive mercy and grace. By rights, he should have died. He should have been executed. The king of Israel is about to be executed for disobeying God. And so he has to fall onto his knees and plead for God for mercy. And God provides him mercy, but that comes at a price. It came at a price. See, the old covenant never fully dealt with sin. And so it could never achieve the level of communion and restoration and relational intimacy that God desires to have with His people. But in the new covenant, Jesus deals with that. And chapter 9 begins to unpack that in its fullness. Right? But His sacrifice cleansed us completely so that God was able to fully forgive us from all of our sins. There is no act that you could commit that would now separate you from the love of God, from the grace of God, from the forgiveness of God. Because Jesus has dealt with it. So we're able to know Him and to be known by Him. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, that's the promise that we get to live with. That's the covenant we get to live under. So we want to thank you, Jesus, for that. That is amazing, God. 
So he closes with a statement in verse 13. He says, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means that he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Now that the new covenant has been inaugurated, the old is done. And notice, right, he's talking about the old covenant, not the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not done, but the covenant is finished. There's a new covenant that we relate to God by. We're no longer bound by the old covenant. We no longer have to stone people that commit sin, right? Because there's grace and forgiveness in Christ. Because Jesus has taken their punishment on himself. It's no longer the way we have to relate to God. But we relate to God under the new covenant of which Jesus is our mediator. And through that covenant, we're made like him. We, We come to know him. He is our God. And we are his people. And our sins are completely forgiven. Praise the Lord. What a wonderful covenant. What a wonderful blessing. And so I want to ask if uh, Kevin and Cora can come up and, and Karen to lead us into, into just, I think, two songs where we just worship God and thank Him for what He's done for us. But it would be wrong of me for us to just end in a moment of worship and not say to you, there might be some of you who are sitting here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus. You haven't yet chosen to follow Jesus. There is a opportunity for you to come under this new covenant, to relate to God in a way that you maybe haven't had a chance to before. You haven't understood God in this way before, but there is an opportunity to begin a journey with Jesus. And if you want to do that this morning, I'd love to introduce you to him. So after we've sung, come and say hello, and I'd love to introduce you to Jesus because there is nothing better than you can find in your life than the King of glory. Thanks, Kev.